Hello and welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the history podcast you wanted, it's the history podcast you deserve. What is going on, Luxa? Not much, Asher. How you doing? I'm doing very well. I am super excited to be here today and to talk about one of my personal favorite philosophers, Thomas Paine. Yeah, okay, so I'm super looking forward to this one as well. Fuck yeah. Yeah, Thomas Paine's a really interesting guy. Um, I've read a lot of his writings in college. I think I've read them a couple different times, but usually just an excerpt form where you break out like a page or two of the rights of man and read this highfalutin intellectual kind of enlightenment era thinking that talking about universal rights and, and all this stuff. And it's, it's a subject matter today that I think is very widely known about. Like a lot of the stuff that he was all about was at his time, very modern and, and revolutionary, but the world has kind of gone in his direction. And I think, we can relate to a lot of his stuff, almost take it for granted in a way, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. So because of things being more modern, his modern ideas were like, oh, yeah, that just seems like common sense, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's the name of one of his famous books, Common Sense. <laughs> <laughs> and that's really like Thomas Paine, I think, was the first philosopher you know, and that might not even be the right term, philosopher, maybe political theorist or uh, political author. All of his books are not like the Edward Gibbon kind of academic reflections on a life of study. Like this is him thinking about stuff and making really simple arguments and putting that putting that on paper and not trying to really appeal to maybe like the king and the queen or the pope, but to the average person is he's trying to bring politics and political philosophy and political education to the masses. And he really is kind of like the first one, one of the first big kind of like Republican philosophers that really attacks monarchy. Uh, He did not like monarchy at all. He had a whole lifelong battle against it. Uh, It brought him to America. He was born in England uh, brought him to America during the revolution. He was a huge part of the revolution. And then afterwards, it brought him to France and the French Revolution. And he played a big part in that, too. Um, so he's a professional revolutionary. But his main kind of goal with a lot of these books was to overthrow the British government, like, kind of. Like, he wanted to stop the King of England and... He felt that the British Empire was the biggest force of blocking progress, blocking progression of the human race, and that he kind of launched this personal crusade against him. And it it didn't work out very well for him in the long run. All right. Well, at least he made a big splash, though, right? It's uh, kind of interesting. (laughs) He definitely made a big splash. He's, He's a really, like, personally, he's a really interesting guy. He's super Aquarian. Um, He... You know, so I'll just get started here, right? So he is born in 1737 in a small town called Thetford in England. And Thetford was kind of like a trading, like market town. And it was, you know, pretty prosperous part of England. But the one really notable thing about Thetford was that there was a prison there. And he grew up. 
he could see the scaffolds from his window growing up. And so they would have these kind of fairs at this town and there'd be like, you know, once a month or something, they'd have a fair and people would come from all over and sell their goods. But the other thing they did is they executed prisoners during these fairs. Well, because that was like a super fun time for everybody, right? Like, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, like this, like this is not even that long ago, right? <laughs> like, it's not. Yeah, so I mean, it's it's interesting to like, I don't know, conceive of of our modern conception of like, uh, I don't know, the way that we think about capital punishment and stuff. It's it's so interesting how much it's changed, and for good. And I'm glad. I'm not saying it's right. Bad. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, it's not, uh, yeah, it's. Anyway. We're, we're going to go to the French Revolution again in this episode, so we can oh, talk yeah, more okay. about Oh, yeah, okay. That's right. Just, but, and, and this was kind of how it was for a long time, as far as my understanding, is that executions were kind of like festive events where lots of times they would sell, like, reservations. Like, you'd have to, to come to these fairs, you'd have to rent a house, rent a room in one of the houses, Right. And like people would rent rooms like months and months in advance so they could get a good seat for the executions, basically. And there's like this big festive atmosphere around it. There's a fair going on. And so it's weird. Yeah, it's, it's weird. And I guess there would oftentimes be, and this goes back to the Middle Ages, you know, um, these executions had religious um, significance where like people would sing, they would like sing songs while they watched somebody get broken on the wheel or tortured to death you know (laughs) that's not sinister at all (laughs) oh yeah if anyone's interested in this topic dan carlin has a whole episode on it about the history of execution culture and it is it's hard to listen to it's but it's really interesting okay fascinating okay uh anyways but so this is the this is the town he grows up in and he was not like most of the people we talk about from England are of this upper class, you know, it's a very stratified society where you have this kind of lords and commoners, you know, and the government since the days of Magna Carta uh, has been run by the nobles and Magna Carta was an event that happened in, you know, the middle ages where the King basically had a little coup with his noble lords and they all got together and they made this like constitution. Basically it was like the first constitution, the Magna Carta, but it limited the power of the king and it, it really enfranchised the noble lords and it created the parliament. And so they had this system that was very ancient. And, you know, at its time, it was pretty progressive, I guess, during the Middle Ages. But by this time, it's kind of a remnant of the Middle Ages. And it's a very stratified society where the people that have everything, that have all the money, that have all the privilege, that have all the advantages, you know, they're a hereditary caste, basically. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And so Payne was not of this nobility. He was a lower class man. They called him free men. And his father, you know, he's from a mixed religious household. His father was a Quaker, which was a kind of newer sect of Protestantism that is very, um, I guess, pacifistic. Um, The Quakers are really cool, but... Yeah, as far as I understand, there's a lot of emphasis on, like, individual practice and stuff. I I don't really know a whole lot about it, but... Yeah, they would gather in societies just called friends. So if you were a friend, then you were part of this Quaker society, and they had been persecuted 
quite a bit over the years in England. And that was, you know, one of the big impetuses to leave the country for a lot of people was religious persecution. And Mm -hmm. so there's a bunch of Quakers living in the United States, you know, like in Pennsylvania, that was like a Quaker colony. Um, But so his dad's a Quaker and his mother was an Anglican. And the Anglican church is very similar to the Catholic church. It's the church that King Henry VIII founded during the Reformation in England. And the big reason he founded it was, you know, so he could divorce his wife Mm -hmm. and marry somebody else because he wanted to produce an heir. And so, but the Anglican church, it kind of took all the same trappings as the, of the Catholic church. Like the mass is like exactly the same, only they're doing it in English. Um, So it's very similar to the Catholic church. It was started by the fricking King of England, you know, so (laughs) it's a state religion, you know, so they're very, kind of very different um, branches of Christianity. And he was kind of exposed to both of these growing up. Um, And religion for him was, he became very much interested in deism, which I know we've mentioned it a few times on the show, but I don't know if we've ever really gone into it. Are you familiar with deism? Yeah, a little bit, just like in passing from, you know, probably studying similar topics, because I know it does come up in some American history and stuff. But as I understand it, it's sort of the idea that um, you can connect with God in places other than a church, like God's everywhere, you can um, have an individual relationship or something. Am I, is that sounding close? Yeah, very much. Yeah, it's, okay. it's a very much a it's it was really popular in the enlightenment and it's a rejection of dogma and it's kind of basing your belief in God on the evidence of God that you can see all around you. And for these people, that was the laws of nature and just how things worked. And that okay, was, enough. yeah, that makes sense. Actually, <laughs> that sounds it, it does. Yeah, ra- yeah. Reasonable enough. I don't know. And so, you know, this was popular with some of the founding fathers as well. Uh, Thomas Jefferson was really into deism. Um, but people at the time thought of deism as basically heretical. It's very close to atheism. It's a rejection of all dogma. And, and part of the belief but is that... It disenfranchises the power structure. So, of course, oh, absolutely, yeah. into it. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, I, I actually kind of... I don't know if I consider myself a deist, but I really like the deist um, theology and just that it's kind of that, you know, these books written, these holy books, these are, these were written by men, right? Like it's, it's obvious that they're historical. Uh, it depends on who you ask, man, right? I mean, uh, right. Yeah. It's my belief, but. Um, <laughs> well, yes. I, and it seemed that's what, I don't know. It's complicated, and I think that it's easy to fall into semantics immediately too on this stuff too, because it's we'll have to define terms and everything. So, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. It just as I was, as I was saying, it just depends on who you ask, because I've had conversations <laughs> no doubt, no with no people, doubt, yeah. and I was surprised to hear that that was not their opinion, and they, yeah, they they felt very strongly about that. So, um, yeah. Well, I think it's just kind of a logical. A logical re-examination of religion and religious yeah. thought. Yeah, and, okay. And so this was this p- plays big into his thinking, is this deism. And like he, so later in his life, he's going to write a book called The Age of Reason. And he actually wrote this while he was in prison in Paris during the French Revolution, because he almost gets killed. And we'll talk about it. But um, this is a scathing attack on organized religion. And 
in a way that is not respectful, like maybe an Edward Gibbon, who also attacked religion, but he did it in a very polite way. <laughs> yeah, but he was, I don't know, he was still like, he, it was polite, like, but he still like fucking through some pretty harsh shade, I thought. Like, it was, it was still scathing, but it, you're right, it was indirect. It was kind of like these like underhanded jabs. It wasn't like, he wasn't a revolutionary, right? He Absolute, was a dude yeah, that exactly. liked to hang out and write books. So, well, I guess they both did, but Gibbon seems like he was probably much more, as you said, like into the the study aspect of it and the research and like. Yeah, he was an academic. He yeah, would, yeah, and Payne, you know. So it'll just continuing with Payne here. So he's he's grown up in Thetford, and the biggest kind of. Um, character to the English shires is that they each had a lord and the lord was very much like a patron or patriarch and had this whole kind of system of patronage set up below him so if you wanted to get a good education you would have to either afford to go to one of these fancy schools but that was mostly for the aristocracy Um, But so commoners could get an education, but you'd have to study at the Lord's library. Like they'd have these amazing libraries. And if you like proved that you're like going to be the Lord's buddy or something, they they would let you come learn. And it was really just kind of sucks. Yeah. (laughs) That's so shitty. Are we taking, sorry, not to get us derailed, but yeah, that just sucks. And like the whole thing was set up that way. So like if you wanted to get a job for the government, like you had to know the Lord, like you had to. It just seemed really corrupt. Had to in... get into the Lord's library. <laughs> get ahead in society. Just like really nepotistic kind of um, way of running things. And uh, the pains themselves were, I guess, of this kind of new working class that was really blowing up in England. You know, so the Industrial Revolution is really starting. And we got things like the printing press, you know, and... It's not quite there yet, but this is kind of when it's starting. And the vast majority of the wealth of the country is being generated by people that own businesses that, you know, make stuff that artisans and craftsmen, basically. And so it's no longer just a peasant society. Like we have a kind of urban society developing and that's where the pains grew up in. And his father was a stay maker, which is a dressmaker. And I guess a stay is like part of the dress or something. Yeah, a stay is. I think it is like, um, in like a corset, perhaps like the ribbing or something. Yeah, yeah, wrong. yeah. I, I'm not something really like that. great at fashion, but that's my best guess. Something to do with like it staying in a shape. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I had never heard the term stay maker before, but I guess that was a whole trade. I'm and he curious. Made- I'm gonna look it up. He, his father would make, yeah, corsets and, and dresses for the rich nobility, for, for rich ladies. And that was his profession. And so that's what Thomas Paine kind of went into when he first uh, started growing up. He started out as a stay maker. Oh, okay. So actually a stay is, is itself like a corset. It says um, that stays, sometimes called a pair of stays, were a common woman's garment in the 18th and early 19th century. Rather like a corset, stays were commonly worn under a dress to support and shape a woman's figure. 
So <laughs> okay, there you there go. you have it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like kind of like a bra, like yeah, only f- like for your waist. It's like for uh, your waist. Get get out of the way, organs. I want to look a certain way. Like I'm supposed to do this because society is bonkers. Yes. <laughs> and so that you know, it looked like Thomas Paine was just going to have this, you know low middle-class life in the, in Thetford being a stay maker like his father. And uh, he, he gets married. He meets a, a woman and he gets married and he's 22 years old. And I believe she is 20. And it seemed like this was, you know, the start of a happy life for him, but she died in childbirth, you know, tragically, which mm-hmm. I guess, you know, even back then was still, something that was, you know, very risky to have a child. And, um, but after this kind of the death of his family and, you know, the, the, the child died as well. Um, he never really recovered from that, I think emotionally. And he does go on to be remarried again, but some people thought that he never even consummated the marriage that like he was afraid to sleep with his new wife. And, um, well, yeah, he probably had a lot of like survivor's guilt surrounding that. That probably was incredibly difficult. That's very sad. Right. Um, so for the rest of his life, he does have the second marriage that doesn't last very long and it's just a disaster. But after that, he never has a girlfriend for the rest of his life. He's he's very much kind of, I don't know, just kind of, I think that first thing really affected And yeah, so he lived a... I guess a bachelor life, the rest of his life. Um, so anyways, um, as he's, you know, getting older, he decides that he wants to go into the, and this is what happened. Um, so his father's dress making company was not doing very well. Uh, Thetford had been replaced by some other kind of like market towns. And as the ports became more and more, important people would kind of they prefer to have their markets closer to the sea and so thetford was kind of falling on hard times and his father didn't think there would be enough business left for him to continue the family business so he had to go basically find a new profession Hmm. and his you know his wife's father um his, his deceased wife's father worked in the excise office which is basically like an inspection agency for the government. Like they would go inspect stuff. Excise. That was- <laughs> they go and steal things from people. That sounds like <laughs> I know. Yeah. To excise some taxes. Right? <laughs> like- it was the king's excise. Yeah, it's kind of like a tax collector. Okay. Um, and so that's how he started. That was his first job. And like, I guess at this time, smuggling was huge in, in Britain, and there would be these, you know, smuggler havens where they could get past all of the taxes that you know the excise the, the king was <laughs> and so the the excise agent would have to go confront these smugglers oftentimes and sometimes oh, it would that get sounds like a bad job <laughs> yeah really really bad job you should go fight with pirates or whatever it is right <laughs> like... and like they're unarmed they don't like sometimes they get like constables to come with them but like, excise men would get killed like it was not uncommon and everyone hated you like so you're going to pubs and you're inspecting their alcohol. And if it's bootleg, then you got to like, so it's just like, was not a popular profession. Sure, and, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how he started. And as the King's excise man, but while he's working in the excise, 
he is exposed to internal corruption of the government where these kind of, you know, the, the higher hierarchical system of the excise itself, you would have kind of like veteran inspectors at the top who oftentimes were corrupt. And no. I know it's shocking. <laughs> and these guys below them would oftentimes get blamed for everything. And so something like this seems to have happened to him. We're not exactly sure. Um, you know, someone was fudging the numbers. They were not actually going out and inspecting. They were just writing in the book that they were inspecting and then like getting paid to not do it, basically. And some people think that he had uncovered this corruption and was trying to expose it. And that's why he was fired from the excise office. But he does go on to be fired from the government. And I think he's in his like mid thirties at this point. And he's kind of like not having a very good go of it over there in England. All right. Are you with me so far? Oh yeah, definitely. Okay, cool. Okay. And then just, I guess trying to speed this along a little bit. Um, but the next big thing that, that happens and it's interesting is that he, he becomes a privateer. Speaking of piracy. Okay. Um, so fuck. Yeah. So he goes from being an excised <laughs> man to a pirate. I'm sorry. A privateer. <laughs> privateer. Yes. A privateer. Yes. And like, this is like a funny little insight into this world where I so the, ca- the captains would come to the coastal cities. I think he's in Dover on the Southern coast and they'd just start recruiting people and you could get a cut of the spoils. And they had an agreement with the crown that, you know, that's why these aren't pirates. Yeah. They that's like why a, they're, they're privateers. Cause they, yeah. they're state sanctioned pirates. <laughs> they are state sanctioned. Like absolutely. And you can go after these certain countries, like, so Spain and France, that's, those are the ones that like you, if they try to sell some goods through the channel. Well, we're going to steal it basically. Yes, so European he... politics during this time was very close to, like, organized crime. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> and it's just so funny because there is this one event where they seize this French ship and, you know, the, the crew is surrendering. They haven't, you know, oftentimes these were not violent situations. They would just come up to a merchant ship and they would unarm the few guards on them and take all the property and tow the ship back to their port. So they're doing that with some French ship, but this other English ship rolls up and they're like, hey, we helped you subdue this ship. And Thomas Paine's captain's like, no, you didn't. This is our ship. Get out of here. But the other captain would not relent and they took it to court. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So this actually went to court and the magister or judge ruled in favor of Thomas Paine's captain and gave him four fifths of the bounty, but the other ship did get one fifth of the bounty, so that okay. was the settlement. Um, and so, you know, he had a little time on the sea fighting. You know, this is not an easy job being a privateer. Um, but, anyways, I think he kind of, you know, didn't really want to do that. He was very intellectual, and at this time, he joins like a, a society, uh, I don't know, like a book club, maybe you could call it, of kind of lower class people in the city of Lewis that have like a little society where they they meet and they talk about politics. They talk about intellectual stuff. And it's just kind of like this new coffee house culture of the Enlightenment. And Sounds very these... seditious. <laughs> yes. Lots of <laughs> new ideas were being floated around <laughs> in these places. Um, but this is where Thomas Paine is really able to kind of 
gain his intellectual confidence in this little society. And he starts to push words around on paper. He starts to study people like Edmund Burke, who um, is somebody he's going to come into conflict later. We'll talk about that. And um, Edward Gibbon, you know, these are all contemporaries, but look like studying good writers and powerful writers and trying to understand what's the secret to their success. And so he starts writing. He just starts writing all of these, writing his thoughts down and changing them, rewriting the same thing, but different. You know, how can I express myself, not just on a base level, but how do I really get to that meatiness of what makes a great writer? And so this is kind of the formative period of his like intellectual development is in this little society in Lewis. Um, But anyways, as time goes on, he basically tries to rejoin the excise office and he tries to write this letter to parliament to like, you know, the reason the excise office is so corrupt is because they're not being paid enough. So if you paid them more, there wouldn't be so much corruption. He makes this kind of legal you know, pamphlet that's addressed to parliament and he passes it around to all his friends and they all think it's, you know, it's really well written and he never even gets a reply but he does get fired again or he gets refused admittance back into the excise office. And so at this point in his life, his time in England is basically up and he is looking to America and he's really sick of the fact that he has been embroiled with the government and he's kind of been blacklisted by the government. And he really, shouldn't have said that stuff about the corruption, right? Like, yeah, yeah. It's kind of, yeah. And then it's... expected to come back. I don't know, right? I don't, <laughs> He's like, very naive, yeah. Yeah, I feel like there. you see this sometimes where people are like, wait, why is everybody being such a dick? Like, and th- Because they're just like, maybe like ahead of their time or they're just... Well, he, he's very Aquarian. Like it's, he had this these lofty ideas, you know, and they're all logical. Like it's reasoned out. Like it's really good logic and reasoning. But he's also really blind to just like kind of the reality of how things work, you know, like, yeah, you're going to piss a lot of inf- like powerful people off when you go after powerful people, right? Like, yeah, that's comes with the territory, even if you're right. That doesn't really matter most of the time in in these kind of organizations. In fact, know? being right often is the worst thing you can be. People <laughs> don't often want to hear it. We were before we started recording, we were talking about um, Goodell and everything. And so, but yeah, yeah. So sometimes being right is not a healthy thing for your the rest of your life, right? Like in terms yeah. of what happens to you. <laughs> so yeah. And thus, the end result is that he boards a ship to leave England and to come to America. And this is in 1774. He doesn't have a penny to his name. He is broke. He's, you know, a widower and kind of burned a lot of his bridges in back in England. And so he sets sail to America. And the only thing he has is a letter of introduction to Benjamin Franklin, who's a, a Quaker. And he I believe had some connections from his father to introduce him to, to Franklin. And that's so he, he arrives after a very um, inauspicious journey where he almost died of um, dysentery or something on the boat, but he eventually gets to America and it's, it's 1774. So it's right before the American revolution is about to break out. And he will go on to be 
one of the main intellectual back backbones of the revolution. He becomes a, a, a revolutionary, basically. All right. Fuck yeah. So just real quick, I want to take a, a quick sidebar and note that like, so as far as I understand it, um, from going to the very cool pirate museum in St. Augustine, Florida, which I would recommend to anybody that's in the area. It's a very Fuck cool, yeah. um, there and, and from other places too, this has been, um, it's come up several times, but like pirates, a lot of times they did have a pretty like, and especially for that period of time, like a really kind of modern way of doing things. Like they had equal shares, like people got equal votes. Um, I mean, like they were like, criminal whatever they weren't like i'm not trying to say they were like great people or whatever but they had these sort of like the way that they they ran the ships was a lot more modern than things that we saw other places so i wonder to what extent that influenced him like i wonder yeah to what extent america is like founded on ideas that pirates came up with and and for some reason like that sort of makes a lot of sense to me now that i'm saying it out loud i don't know (laughs) (laughs) you know there is a big kind of thread in American freedom that is kind of like protecting smuggling, it, more so smuggling than piracy, but they go hand in hand, right? And that's kind of the um, protection without probable cause. Like, so even if you are a pirate or a smuggler, they need probable cause to come search you. Like, so you have these kind of built-in protections against um Against power. Yeah, really. that's a good. That's an interesting point too. Yeah, I never thought about that. I mean, obviously, so that, it's not. We're not trying to say it's like a fucking great perfect system, or but is really interesting. Like, yeah, that this now that we're getting into it, this comparison here makes a lot of sense. It is. It is very interesting. This is like the golden age of pirates, by the way, and I think that book on pirates will be written in about twenty years, which really started off like the the craze of pirates and. Um, the the author of that is anonymous. No one even knows who wrote it. But um, but we anyway, should, so it, we should do an episode about pirates sometime. That would be yeah, fun. we definitely should. Yeah, there's some really interesting pirates in Asia, Chinese pirates and stuff. Oh, really? Uh, I would love to talk about that. that would yeah, be I have cool. a whole book on famous pirates, and I, I didn't know anything about the Asian ones, but they're really exciting. Oh um, yeah. Anyways, though, so we're in we're in America, and there is this big controversy brewing in America over you know, the parliament is trying to tax people basically. And, you know, there have been this, there's a big war with France basically that had just ended and that's called the seven years war. And they're fighting over North America basically. Um, And the British won this war. They took over Canada and they chased the French out of, you know, modern day United States. Um, But the war was extremely expensive and it was fought, for the colonies. And so the British government thought, well, the colonies can pay for the war. And so they started coming up with these new ways to tax the colonies. And this did not go over well. And, you know, we had a lot of kind of enlightenment intellectuals in the colonies that were really into British law and legalism and the British style of governance and which had been looked on extremely favorable all over the world as like the best governed nation and the most free nation. But here are, you know, Englishmen being oppressed by their own government and they have no rights in it at all. Like, so it's this kind of like internal revolt, I guess, within the English civilization. Do you think that it was like 
for the first time, these people that were, you know, arguably sort of privileged, like, got a taste of their, like, you know, what it would be like on the other side of the coin. And they're like, wait, fuck that. We have to get rid of all of this. Like, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, well, there definitely is a lot of that. Like, the founding fathers had a lot to lose, right? So they mm-hmm. had, a, um, you know, definitely didn't want to lose all their property and stuff. Um, so there definitely was parts of that. But the American Revolution, you know, it, it does seem to be very idealized that in this new time and place, we shouldn't have all these old systems just because they're the system. Like, it's like, why don't we do things a little bit differently? You know, we've been talking, we have all these great intellectuals and philosophers. Well, why don't we just do what they've been talking about? Like, and so John Locke was really the first guy to kick off this kind of modern freedom, I guess, um, which, you know, I, I don't know that much about Locke, to be honest, but Thomas Paine is very much cut of his cloth and he kind of arrives in this kind of simmering situation where the, the rulers of the colony feel like they're being oppressed. And at the same time, these are like proud Englishmen, like people would say they spoke way better English in the colonies than they did back in London. Like the people's English in London was like all slang and just really dirty, but these people spoke perfect English and they were like the idealized English gentlemen. And <laughs> so they're like, we're, we're even better than all of you guys or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think a lot of it was that they felt that, yeah, they were, they were loyal and English and that they should be part of the government, that they should be recognized as such, not kind of relegated as this area that has no legal rights, that is just kind of, um, you know, at our mercy. We can just tell them what to do. They have no recourse. To, you know, they can maybe try to write a letter to Parliament to convince them not to do it. That's about it, about it though. You know, so you could write some letters, but you have no legal authority over the future. And the colonists thought that, you know, England was benefiting from us, not the other way around. You know, like we're out here doing all this work, building this new, you know, prosperous place. And they just want to leech, leech all of that from us. You know, I think that was kind of like the impetus yeah, and that's kind of what was happening. They were like, oh, well, you guys can pay for yourselves now. You owe us money. Give us some money. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, the the war was really expensive, the, the Seven Years' War. So I think it made sense for Parliament to try to tax people, but it just didn't go over well, right? Sure, so oh, yeah, had, yeah. You had the Stamp Act, which was, you know, this, this stamp, this new tax, and they would just stamp stuff with it, and all of a sudden that means that that commodity was now being taxed by this new tax. And so that did not go over well. And you had the Boston Tea Party. And, you know, so people disguised themselves as Indian, Native Americans, and they took over the ship in the harbor and they just threw all the cargo into the ocean and it had all this tea in it, right? Yeah, and, um, like, the... Like- the fact that people like glorify this is really gross. I just want to fucking say that real quick, <laughs> like, because I like, th- isn't there's like a group that like like we're the Tea Party and like, but like y'all th- that f- the story is really gross. Like they, the fact that they like dressed up like Native people and fucking like 
blamed them for this thing. Like, I don't know. At least have the fucking balls to do it yourself, right? Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that part of it is a little bit unsavory. It's gross. It's it's really gross. I don't know. Yeah, just wanted to throw that out there. But the result of that is there's a big crackdown in Boston, and it's martial law. Uh, they bring in troops, and they're trying to, you know, I think they shoot a lot of people. Um it, it didn't go, the British response did not go over well. And they basically blockade Boston and then just kind of trying to root out this seditious kind of um, movement in, in its cradle, you know, in the city of Boston. But now, and as, remind me real quick, just before we move on, um, the, there was like a big company that was involved in this, right? Like, didn't the English have like a, like a, economic enterprise that was sort of like one of the central figures in this too like the yeah they had the east east, east india trading yeah east company, india trading say. company yeah that's okay it. and that's i mean that's an episode on, onto itself when we talk about the opium war we'll talk about them because they were basically running india after it was conquered it was like it, given was to this, a corporation okay and was i was going to ask was this like a state concern or was it a private concern or like I guess maybe it's, there wasn't a difference there. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, it's technically private, but it has a government charter that gives it like powers of monopoly and stuff like that. Oh, and, man, it's a good thing we never see that happening ever, anymore because it sounds like it's rife for corruption. <laughs> well, and that gets into like the colonial model. Like, so this is a mercantilistic model and mercantilism is where you basically import raw materials from your colonies. So you get a bunch of tea from India, you take it back to England and you turn it into tea bags, right? You turn it into a finished product or you import a bunch of lumber and then you build furniture. Like, mm-hmm. And then you take those, those final goods back to your colony and sell it back to them. If that makes sense. Yeah. And so, yeah, the British East India company did have like a state sponsored monopoly and that was one of their ships. And now, were yeah. you allowed to, because I think there were other constrictions too on the colonists to like keep this monopoly in play, right? Like, were you, you were, you were like not allowed to like make your own chair and sell it, I think in some cases, this was probably way too much of a generalization, but I thought there was also some, like that was a contributing factor where they had like these economic constraints on them too, where that were, they didn't yeah. like. So they had like legal monopolies where it was like, it was like illegal to compete with them in a lot of cases. Uh, I, I believe at least. Yeah, and, and I, I could see, like, as a colonist too, how inconvenient that would be. Also, you know, like, why can't we make our own fucking chairs here locally? <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. And yeah, like on that note, all of the, um, the really good trees, the really big trees, none of them could be cut down by the colonists because they were reserved for the British Navy. So, like, they would literally go through the countryside and like tie ribbons around trees and say, no one can cut this down. This is our tree. Um, yeah. So that was kind of, yeah, this militaristic kind of influence as well that uh, this is, this place exists for the glory of Britain, not the other way around. It doesn't exist, you know, to be a good place to live, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, fuck, fuck everybody here. Fuck everybody who was here. Like, we don't care. Give us your resources. And yeah, it's, it's pretty gross. Totally. Yeah. And this is really the age of imperialism. Like, um, you know, you got Europeans all over the world. Um, you know, we mentioned India. Uh, that was a big 
change, having Europeans all of a sudden take over India. And then they start creeping into East Asia and into Africa. And, um, you know, Napoleon kind of kicks off the scramble for Africa in about 20 years from this time. So this really is when imperialism is taking off. It's all of the rage. And the idea is, yeah, we need these colonies so we can be strong, so we can have raw materials and so that we can keep our not newly industrializing economies going and continue so to be can world keep powers. Our our stupid like squab our internal squabbles going with each other, right? Like with our yeah. neighbors, basically yeah. I think is part of it too. Like it was a big part of World War One was that kind of the, the latter day European powers had missed out on this first wave of imperialism and they wanted more of the pie. Like that was a lot of World War One. Mm. You know, Germany only had a few colonies overseas and you know they wanted more and they, you know, they wanted world power. And yeah, so this is very much in the ethos of the times is that, or not only is it okay to like conquer and colonialize people, you should do it. Like it's what you should do. And you're going to bring civilization to all these like. You're you know, helping them. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's, yeah, it's about 50 years from this period, there will be the white man's burden theory that, you know, the which is an English theory that, you know, the empire is a burden to England, not the other way around. You know, they're doing this to help people, not, you know, to exploit them, you know. It's interesting, the... Uh leaps of logic that people will be willing to take to continue to delude themselves not to face something ugly that they're doing right yeah dude but anyways just to get back to our story here the american revolution is is you know obviously more complicated than what we're letting on but just to kind of give the narrative here thomas paine arrives in this kind of simmering discontentment and he really does not like the english government he didn't like the executions growing up. He didn't like the religious persecution of the Quakers and his father's sect. And he didn't like how he was treated by them when he worked for them in the excise office. And he throws in his hat with these Republicans and, and this idea. The, I, just real quick, because I know this is going to like be a sort of confusing term because the, you know, colloquially how we use the term now is different. This means as opposed to monarch monarchist right yes okay. yes so republic is the idea that the citizens will have sovereignty of the country not the monarchy and this is usually expressed through law so instead of having a, you know divine king you'll have divine it's almost like you raise law to a level of divinity and it replaces the king and everybody is subject to the law everybody has to follow the law but the law is made by the people so if there are if the laws are bad then the people can deconstruct the laws and make new laws and they usually do this through representational governments so like a senate you know okay. um yeah and so this is a very kind of ancient idea you know it goes back to the roman days we had the roman republic and mm -hmm. to the greek days where they had lots of different republics and city states and democracy is another big part of this is that if you are somebody that's contributing to the society, you have a voice in in it. You should have a voice in it. You're yeah, like everybody on the pirate ship got a say. Exactly. They yeah. all got a vote. Yeah. If as long, yeah, as long as you're doing your job and like not being like a menace to society or or leeching off of it, then you should have your just part in participating within it. So that's really the idea of republic. And again, it's an ancient idea, but 
it hadn't really hadn't really been tried that often. And there were some merchant republics in the Middle Ages, like in Italy and stuff. But for the vast majority of human history, it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you have monarchy, right? Mm. And so his first big book is called Common Sense. And he basically writes a little history of monarchy and kind of analyzes the institution. And from the very beginning, you know, he's talking about the Israelite, Israelites and, you know, the Babylonians and stuff like that. And it's this history of monarchy and just pointing out how crappy it's been in so many different cases and how it's unnatural that you should have hereditary rule that, Yes, because you know, not, we're used to it, obviously. It's something that we've been living with forever, basically. But if you take the time to re-examine it, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And here's why. And he'll go through all of these different reasons why it's a bad institution and why it's unnatural. And this thing has been holding back humanity and oppressing humanity and causing confusion and wars and religious intolerance and all these things. And so he blames it all on monarchy and writes this book, Common Sense. And this was written in very crude English that, you know, reading it today, it doesn't sound crude. It sounds pretty wordy, actually. <laughs> our, are we, our language has degenerated quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, it really has. <laughs> it really, <Totes>. really has. <laughs> Kappa. <laughs> no cap. Uh yeah, so reading it today, it's it is a little bit difficult to read today, but it's a lot easier than like Edward Gibbon or Edward Burke. Um, and this book was just a huge success, like a massive, massive success. It's you know the rebels got a hold of this thing, and a lot of you know we had the founding fathers who were intellectuals, but the rank and file of America was not intellectuals. Like a lot of the people that came over were criminals uh, or you know, disenfranchised people, exiles. Um, people who were you know. like super in debt and stuff. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of, yeah, a lot of that. They were like, yeah. So the actual mob or the, the people themselves were pretty rough around the edges. And that's the language that he used. And it's very forceful in its condemnation of the monarchy and particularly England and gives these great reasons why, you know, now's the time to get rid of the monarchy and kind of lays out this new vision for the future and calls it common sense. And that's the title. Uh, the, the author of the book was T Common Sense. It's a pen name he used as well. Um, and this book, it was just really, really successful. And it's one of the best-selling books in American history. It found its way into like every part of the country and was the intellectual rallying cry for the common guy, for the average guy, you know. You had Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin who could be incredibly eloquent and, and you know, academic with their, you know, with their speaking. But this was more blue collar. This was designed for the masses. This is a mass market book. And it's kind of like one of the first philosophical works to be of that kind of um, genre, I guess. Okay, of, so it's like pop philosophy kind of stuff. Like, um, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's kind of like taking... Well, the ivory tower, you know, the, the garden of Athens where, you know, you have Plato and Aristotle wandering through the Cypress groves. Well, that was all fun and good, but let's take that into the inner city. Let's take that to the dock. Let's take it to the pub. You know, let's take it to the barracks 
And we don't all have to be these enlightened people to talk about politics, to understand philosophy. To yeah, understand I mean, that's rhetoric. something that Plato, you know, sort of that was something that comes up in one of the dialogues that he makes this, you know, case that this is stuff that's accessible to anybody. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's really what Payne wanted to do. And he was incredibly successful at it. And so he goes on to be like a, basically a celebrity and is like working with George Washington and the founding father. Like he's basically one of the founding fathers. His his contributions was one of the reasons it succeeded. It was this huge rallying cry to the common people. And without that, you know, might not have been a, a success in the long run. Like, so his contribution to the revolution is just, it was amazing. And he goes on to, you know, meet and be accepted into kind of this elite inner circle of this new country that's forming. And as the revolution is going on, there are, you know, there's a lot of people that want to unwind the conflict, walk it back, have a reconciliation. And these are really the people that Tom Paine started to go after, after common sense. And after he became kind of like a member of the movement, he starts going after rival newspaper writers and rival loyalists. And this is something he's going to do for the rest of his life is that he makes these personal attacks on people. And sometimes it's just too much. Like it's just way too much. And, but he does kind of run into trouble during this period. And it kind of soiled his reputation within the new government that was forming. And it's something called the Silas Dean affair. And basically Silas Dean was another one of the founding fathers and he was a merchant in I think South Carolina. And during the revolution, the Americans, you know, had a alliance with France and they wanted to get French weaponry to help them fight off the British. And so they sent this mission to France to buy a bunch of weapons basically. And it was led by Silas Dean, who had a little clause in the thing that he would make a certain amount of money based off of how many things he bought. Um, but anyways, he meets... <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm here to help the cause, but I also want to make some money too. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> okay. And this was kind of like, there was a lot of these kind of bargains that were being made within the revolution is that, you know, if we want this guy to be on our side, we're going to have to kind of make some... Um, some deals, you know. Sure, sure. And I guess it was thought that, you know, he's going to be using a lot of his own money to do this. So it's only, I guess, fair that he should profit from it. It'll give him some incentive to do a good job, kind of. Okay, okay, sure. That makes sense. Uh, but he comes to France and he doesn't speak any French. And he meets with this guy who like is... They didn't a con- send anybody with him that could speak fucking French. Uh, right? Yeah. But French okay. is hard, I guess. So th- France will be big in the story and like no one can speak it. Uh, That's okay. (laughs) Anyways, while he's there, he meets this, this guy's really famous. He became a famous playwright later on or opera uh, writer, but he was like a total charlatan. And the king of France was actually going to give the Americans a bunch of weapons, just give them to them. And they were old crappy, like muskets and stuff that they didn't need anymore. So they're just going to give them to the Americans. Well, this guy like co-ops that and decides to sell all of this crap to Silas Dean. <laughs> so it's supposed to be free. And okay, just, what's this guy's name? Cause that's really Let me funny. look him up. Okay. Yeah. He, he became, <laughs> yeah, he became a famous playwright. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. Okay, so Silas Dean basically gets grifted. He gets grifted, and, like, the... He thought that, you know, the... He came back, and he thought that everything went great. Like, I got a bunch of guns. (laughs) I mean, it seems like it went well on his side. I mean, I don't know. I was wondering earlier when you said his name, Silas Dean, you said he was a founding father. I'm like, why have I not ever heard of this guy? I'm just starting to get it. (laughs) We don't like to talk about him. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, pretty much. That's funny. Okay, yeah, yeah. So he was negotiating with the French foreign minister, Comte. Comte de Vergennes. I'll I'll link that for you. Okay. <laughs> I suspect we probably didn't say that right. <laughs> yes, I'm, I do suspect. <laughs> I, I butchered that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's got a lot of extra letters in there. I'm not sure how to say that either. Co- yeah, Comte de Vergennes. Well, that guy, anyway, hats off. That's very funny. <laughs> but anyway, so he kind of gets fleeced. Silas Dane's get fleeced. And later on, after the war, this dude shows up and hands the American government this huge bill for all this shit weapons, like millions and millions of dollars. Like, um, And so the whole thing was just a fiasco. And I guess, you know, Thomas Paine wanted to expose some of the corruption like that was happening. Like Silas Dean wanted to cover this up. He didn't you know, want this to become well known that, you know, he got fleeced. Well, no and, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, now the country has to pay for all this crap and it's going to enrich this one, you know, charlatan kind of thing. And so Thomas Paine gets embroiled in this and it really sullies his reputation. And this is when we start to see factionalism starting in the American political sphere. Where, okay. So yeah, he goes after sort of somebody in his own, um, club or whatever you want to call it yeah Yeah. and so there were kind of like two camps that developed and he ended up being kicked out of congress he was like actually like in the he was in the congress for like a minute like a hot minute and he was the first guy to be kicked out of it um there was like a vote of no confidence and uh, <laughs> no, actually he was, he resigned. He, he survived the vote of no confidence, but he was forced to resign. So he wasn't technically kicked out. But okay. He, he resigned in disgrace instead. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. He resigned in disgrace. And this affair really kind of, I, I guess it kind of illustrated how things were going to be done in the future. Just the, the nature of Republican politics. Well, yeah, that, and that sucks for him because he's such an idealist. And to see that it's exactly, not any yeah. different, it's like, oh, you guys suck just as much. You just have different interests, right? Like, yeah. that's yeah, all it really much. is. You, it's not that you have any actual idealistic like difference. It's just your interests are different. And that's why you no longer align with England or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there, there's these attacks in the press, you know. So he was big into attacking people in the press, but he also got attacked a lot. And oftentimes it would just be lies and kind of like slander. And so like, this is a big thing for him. Like, how do we have a free press? But just having a free press doesn't mean you can print complete lies all the time and slander people. Like it's a difficult kind of balance. Like, um, but he was really dragged through the mud pretty much his whole life in the newspapers. And he would write these replies where he would try to defend himself. And uh, it was just, it never really seemed to help. He would kind of make things worse. But at this time, uh, Benjamin Franklin's daughter said that the best thing he could have done was died after he wrote Common Sense. He would never have as much credibility as he had after that. 
Um, anyway, so the American Revolution, you know, goes on to succeed. And for him, this is actually kind of like he doesn't really have a place anymore. Like he's not really a statesman. He's a philosopher. He's he's like a pamphleteer. He wrote all these political pamphlets. But yeah, common he's sense, like, he's too much of a visionary to be a, a politician, right? Like he can't handle like the reality much. of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. And the dirty kind of deals that go on behind closed doors, these agreements, these, you know, for him, he, he was very naive and very idealistic and he wanted to expose corruption and he didn't realize that that's not that easy to do. You know, like you can't just uh, pull the cloak back and then everyone's going to love you. Like pulling the cloak back is going to make you a lot of enemies and they're going to have a chance to tell their side of the story. They're going to have a chance to slander you, to take the blame off of them back onto you and cast your allegiances in suspicion. You know, called him a, a mercenary writer, you know, who would, an agent of the king, people call, you know, it's, like, it's just all this crazy slander against him. But eventually his place in America kind of comes to an end. He's no longer like the war has ended and he doesn't really have a place anymore. And, but it just so happens that, you know, as time goes on, you know, the situation in France is becoming, it's becoming revolutionary. Yeah, they, they were sort of like inspired by us, right? <laughs> like, very much so. Very, yeah. very much so, yeah. So and, so, and that makes sense. Like, he's, he's like, oh, yeah, well, I, this is what I like to do. Like, I'm just going to go do that some more. I love fighting. I, I hate it when things are chill, apparently. That's why I have to do all these. I don't know. He's, he sounds like the kind of... um. An interesting person. I'm not. I'm not trying to like cast dispersions on him, but he definitely sounds like somebody who goes looking for trouble. Oh, absolutely. He could not be alone. Like he, he's really interesting because he couldn't take care of himself. Like he would live in like squalor. People would come into his room and they'd be shocked at how dirty everything was. Like and like soil. Like and like he like couldn't even function. Like well, on like a like really. He, he had some probably pretty you know, deep psychological problems surrounding whatever with, you know, I probably growing up watching all those executions might not have been <laughs> that great for a kid. I'm guessing just my yeah, right. suspicion. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not a mental health professional or a parent, but like, just seems like maybe that wouldn't be great for somebody. And then, you know, having this thing happen where, you know, you get married and you think everything's going to be chill and you're going to make these corsets or whatever, and that's going to be your life. And then like everything just falls to pieces around you. And, I don't know. Uh, when would he have gotten a chance to sort of like heal from that, right? Like to, I don't think we had any, he probably wasn't seeing a therapist or anything, Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> like, He wasn't going to church. Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, um, it makes sense that he, he might uh, have some psychological issues for sure. Yeah, no doubt, yeah. And, and just a lot of like really, I guess, intelligent people they're kind of like too much of in one way and like a lot of their other stuff is lacking. Like Einstein was kind of like that, you know, like had a hard time dressing himself and stuff like that. Like, yeah. He just like, from what I understand, he just like super didn't give a fuck about like fashion or any of that stuff. He just like, couldn't be, couldn't, couldn't be, be bothered to like yeah. care about it at all. So like, yeah. Yeah. I think pain was very similar. Um, but anyway, so now he doesn't go to France. He doesn't speak French, but he has this idea that, the revolution in America is just the beginning. This is a world revolution and it's going to spread. It's going to spread all throughout Europe and all of these ancient corrupt monarchies are going to be deposed. And it's going to be this like, 
utopian kind of people are going to run everything for the first time. It's a very kind of dreamy utopian way of thinking this world revolution. He's kind of like the first guy to like think this way. You know, the Marxists will kind of run with this idea as well in about a hundred years. But I think Payne is kind of the first guy to think in this international revolutionary mindset. And so he thinks the revolutions, you know, it's obviously coming to France, but it's also coming to England. And that's where it's most needed is Mm -hmm. in England. And so he goes back to England actually and starts like freaking stirring the pot. (laughs) Okay. All right. Yeah. Like, he was already not very well liked in England by a lot of people. Yeah, he's already on the radar for somebody that's going to like expose corruption, which is probably super not welcome. And yeah. Yeah. And he was a rebel that helped the Americans that wrote this, you know, scathing yes, attack on right. the British monarchy. And you know, he's back in England now. And, <laughs> you know, a lot of people in England, in the government, uh, were liberals. Like, so you had this Enlightenment era where you got guys like, like Edmund Burke and um, Edward Gibbon, who are part of the government, but they have very kind of liberal views. And so th- there is a party in England called the Whig Party, and they were always going against the Conservative Party, the Tory Party. And Isn't this you know, still a thing? Uh, the Tories are still around, yeah. Okay. The Whigs have been replaced. They are no longer around, but... Yeah, the Tories are. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's all changed very much since those days. but Sure, sure. Uh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But anyway, so within the government, there are a lot of people that are Republicans. And during the revolution, Edmund Burke wrote this huge attack on the parliament that he's a part of for their treatment of the colonies and how they're doing everything wrong. Like we should... Like, it's a really interesting... So we're going to be talking about Edmund Burke a lot as well in this episode, who is another one of my favorite philosophers. And it's really funny because the two men, their two greatest works are, like, written to each other, basically. Um, so anyways... So are they, like, kind of, are they friends or are they, like, frenemies? Or what's happening with these they two? They were friends. Yeah, okay. they were friends until Thomas Paine wrote The Rights of Man. But, <laughs> okay. <laughs> until, so, until Paine did his Paine thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he's in England. He's kind of stirring up the pot. He's he's made a lot of friends in this Whig party. Like he's very much of that way of thinking. But he actually wants to do it all. Like he wants to have a revolution, basically. He wants to get rid of the king. He wants to, as were guys like Burke, were like, well, wait a minute. You know, you don't want to just change everything willy nilly. Like if change is okay, but it has to be improvement. You know, change for change's sake is is a disaster, and it's it will lead to disaster. And Burke goes on to make a speech in Parliament denouncing the French Revolution. And so this is very opposite to his speech in Parliament in favor of the American Revolution. So he was in favor of American Revolution, but he's against the French Revolution. And he talks about kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater kind of deal with, you know, France is a great country and a great civilization, It doesn't need to be destroyed to be restarted. Like you can take the parts that work and reform them, reform the parts that don't work. And what he saw in France was basically the return of ancient barbarism where. Things got a little, uh, a little intense there for a while. (laughs) Yeah. 
And so this was a big shock to the fellow Whigs and that, wow, because a lot of people thought that, you know, the French Revolution was a copy of the American Revolution and it's going to be coming to England very soon. And it's a good thing. It's, it's a great thing. Um, but he, you know, kind of exposes that, you know, it's not going very well. And when he came out and kind of put his like his authority against the revolution, this pissed off Thomas Paine to no end. And he decides to write a response to Edmund Burke's reflections on the revolution in France. And this is his best selling work. It's called The Rights of Man. And The Rights of Man was a declaration that the French assembly came up with pretty early on in the revolution. They drafted these kind of like idea for universal rights, you know, which something that was in the American uh, declaration of independence as well. Universal rights, but only for certain kinds of people. Don't, you know, (laughs) I'm actually not sure about the details in France, but in, in, you know, in the American revolution, it's like, oh yeah, everybody's equal. Oh, I mean, by everybody, we mean like white dudes that have land. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, and I think it's even like the we're talking about compromises and political deals like in the American Revolution. There's all kinds of people like Thomas Paine that wanted to get rid of slavery that, you know, saw it as abhorrent. But the reality was, is that it was the the economy was running off of it. And, you know, it was a huge part of why the colonies even you know, were founded as business ventures. And so while you could say all these lofty things, the reality isn't that easy to do. Well, you're, right? Yeah, like, you're going against like this really entrenched, like, you know, fucking powerful thing. That's like, yeah, totally. Yeah. And just kind of like the way you, you'd have to figure out a new economic model, you know, and that would fuck up all the people that benefited from this model and it could cause uncertainty. Yeah, who, you know, so it's just, as I said, who were already very powerful. So yeah. Yeah. And the French revolutionaries were similar. They, they had lofty ideas and they wanted to re-examine all these things and come up with better ways of doing it. And, you know, the, the role of women in society was a big part of the French revolution. And like the revolution's kind of kicked off by women and they march on Versailles, the, crowd of angry, hungry women march on Versailles with all of their pots and pans and shit and Mm -hmm. demand the king come back with them. Like, so it was very much these ideas were floating around in, in France and they came up with this, you know, really lofty declaration of the rights of man. And it's really famous document and didn't live up to the aspirations of it, obviously, but it still was, you know, setting the bar high kind of deal. Uh, but anyway, so he, he he writes his rights of man, you know, referencing the, what's happened in France and supporting supporting the revolution, basically. And he mentions Edmund Burke in this thing, like every single paragraph. Like, <laughs> it, it's a scathing attack on Burke personally. And like, it, it's just like going way too far. That's and, so weird. Like, uh, it's so interesting. And, and Burke makes, so I've read reflections on the revolution in France and it's one of the most powerful works of political rhetoric I've ever read. Like it is a tour de force of rhetoric and logic and, and reasoning. Like I don't agree with everything he says, but what after reading it, you're like, holy shit, this dude knows how to make a point. And like, it's a really interesting book about, it's kind of a defense of aristocracy and like the good parts about it and pointing out all the bad parts of Republicanism 
And like, there's a whole chapter called Why Lawyers Are Unfit to Rule. <laughs> yeah, you should read that one. <laughs> Holy shit, did he nail it. Like, the dude was like, really, he really was of a different age and kind of this dying chivalrous aristocratic age. But holy crap, did he point out the flaws in the new coming age. And anyways, you know, so Burke's book was really good. Like, so, and Payne read it and he agreed with a lot of it, but the condemnation of the revolution as a whole, he thought was, was ignorant and, and wrong. He was a true believer in the revolution in France. And oh, okay. So he maybe mentions Burke because he's going through point by point and maybe trying to like refute it or something. Is that yeah, what's happening? He's, he's okay. going point by point for every one of Burke's points. Okay. And yes, describing why he's wrong or what, why he missed the point, you know. <laughs> And, yeah. And so it actually comes out in two parts. And the first part was really popular. This sold extremely well in England. And he was able to find publishers that could print it on these little crappy pamphlets. And then they would charge like really low amount. So it could have a huge circulation. Um, so Thomas Paine is one of the best selling authors in America and England but he never made any money off of his writings. Like they were just being published so they could be get, getting into people's hands. Yeah, he didn't you know? care about that. <laughs> yeah, that money is going to be a problem for him his whole life. You know, he's not good with money. Um, but anyway, so he writes this. And The Rights of Man is another really amazing work of political philosophy. And it's very much the crowning enlightenment ideals of this universal universal mankind and this this way forward from all of the tyranny and oppression of the past and and it's very hopeful very very hopeful and defending the revolution and as things kind of turned out it's it does lose a little bit of its vigor because of how poorly things end up turning out but it's still an amazing work of political philosophy the rights of man and this thing again it sold like crazy in england and people you know, like dirty cobblers and stuff would have this thing and would quote from it, you know, and these drunk guys at pubs would be talking about, you know, republicanism. And it really brought this new way of political savviness to the masses. And they kind of called, called it the Paynite movement. And Payne was 100% certain that the revolution was coming to England. And he wanted to kind of kick it off, basically. But again, this was super naive. And when he writes part two of The Rights of Man, he is kind of calling for like a revolution. Like, and meanwhile, the revolution in France has gotten really bloody. Mm. And so... Bad optics. He, <laughs> yeah, it was bad optics. And while he was still very, very popular with a lot of people, the English crown and government was able to kind of circle the wagons and turn him into public enemy number one. You know, yeah, because that would be the perfect time to do it. Like, hey, look, this guy wants us to be like them over there, like where everything's all fucked up right now, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so through this kind of underhanded campaign by the British government, they're able to like really smear his reputation. They're paying people to burn effigies of him. Like burning <laughs> Thomas Paine effigies was like a huge deal. Like everyone, like you'd have these huge parties where you could go burn your Thomas Paine. We should and have a party getting... where we burn a Thomas Paine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> but out of like, you know, 
as like a fun uh, a sign of respect, maybe. This is interesting. <laughs> uh, but so anyways, it starts getting bad where people are afraid for his safety. And he, there's people following him around, like secret agents would follow him around. And, base, and then eventually the crown brings charges against him. And this is libel. It's, uh, it's, he slandered Edmund Burke so badly and slandered the king and, and the country and the honor of England that they're going to charge him with libel because of this book. But this was a really clever way of basically chasing him out of the country. So they set the date for the trial like a couple years in advance. And then they started going after his publishers. And it kind of became clear to Payne that he had to leave the country. Um, it just, his trial was probably going to, he was probably get hanged at his trial if it actually yeah. ever happened. But see, the Crown probably didn't want this trial to happen either because of how much exposure it would have given to his ideas. And by 100%. that time things might have calmed down in France and his ideas might be sounding pretty good again. I don't know, right? Like, Yep, and they didn't want to martyr him, right? Yeah. So yeah, that's, and, I mean, th- yeah, when it comes to like cynical politics, those fuckers <laughs> certainly know what they're doing, right? <laughs> yeah, they really do, yeah. They really do. And so they kind of organize his his exile to, to France. And there is this, like eventually he has to leave one night. Like, I think the police come for one of his close publishers and take him away. And like the guy refuses to, you know, say anything against pain. And, but it's kind of clear that he has to leave. And so they like make their way to the coast in secret. And he has all of his papers in a trunk and he's actually arrested in the hotel the night before he's going to leave by the police. And they're going through all of his shit. And they, one of them turned out to be a huge fan of his writings and just let him go basically. He said, well, you should probably leave and never come back because, you know, you got kind of lucky that I'm a fan of yours. And um, yeah, okay. you are technically a fugitive fleeing the country, trying to flee justice, but I'm going to let you go. And okay. so he's able to get to France, basically. And he lands in Calais and there's a huge party waiting for him. Like his rights of man has been very much like common sense was to the American Revolution. It has been a huge rallying cry to the French Revolution. And a lot of people kind of felt like they had the right to do this, to have a revolution, to get rid of the monarchy. Do you think that the rights of man, like, intensified what was going on there, like, at all? Like, um, I'm not familiar enough with, like, the timing and everything of all of it, but... I don't think so. Okay. I think... I mean, I think it intensified the popular kind of sentiment... Like, so when he lands in Calais, like the whole town is there. Like, and they, you know, this beautiful young woman comes and puts a tricolor hat on him and a wreath and they immediately vote him as the representative of their city, Calais, to be in the assembly and part of the They're revolution. They're like, you're ours now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like he gets off the boat and he's like a hero. And like, he's all of a sudden projected right into the heart of the French Revolution, right after he steps off the book. And Doesn't it's not going to be too French. long before these fuckers throw him in jail next, right? Yeah, it, it, goes, <laughs> it goes poorly. Um, so we can talk a little bit more about the French Revolution here. And so by the time he gets there, there's kind of like these two groups, the Guerdians and the Jacobins. And the Guerdians were kind of, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, or Guerdians? 
Girondins? Sorry. The kind of like, I guess. Don't ask me. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's see. So in, in 1792, that's when he arrives in France. So the revolution started three years earlier, and they have taken the king captive, but they haven't executed him or done anything like that. The terror has not begun yet. This is still like in the formative part of the revolution where it hasn't really been taken over yet. And there's kind of a line that... Um, from the book I read that says, you know, revolutions are started by majorities, but they're often co-opted by minorities. And that's definitely what happened in France here. So like the initial kind of revolt against the king starts because of this famine. And, you know, France had been the wealthiest and most powerful country in the, on the continent pretty much since the middle ages. And, you know, a couple kings earlier, you had Louis XIV and the building of Versailles. And, you know, they had huge armies, really good armies. They conquered uh, Sicily, or not Sicily, uh, Corsica, where Napoleon's from, you know. And they had, like, the papal seat for a while. and like They right? had the papacy at Avignon yeah. for many years, yeah. yeah. And, you know, the French monarchy was ancient, entrenched, you know, monarchy. And, well, looking at you know, what happened in America, you know, people thought, okay, well, this is our chance to kind of, we're having this big famine. People are upset. Let's see if we can have an American revolution here. We want the king to give up, you know, dictatorial power and to form some kind of assemblies that we can have representatives in, that we can have a voice in the ruling of the country. Like this new group of people, you know, the bourgeoisie that are, you know, businessmen, you know, we mentioned how in previous episodes, how the nobility really wasn't supposed to be doing business in Europe. It was very much looked down upon to be a businessman. You know, you're supposed to make your money through land ownership, you know, so you have a big estate and then you have peasants that work the land. They can live there for free, but they have to give you a bunch of the food, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how you make your money. But all of yeah, a sudden it, you it have- really was, it was like basically doing business is like for peasants and super gross. Yeah. 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 And so, but you had these new group of people and these are the, the Gerdions and, you know, they initially kind of step into this revolutionary environment after the King has been kind of arrested by the, by the women of Paris and brought back. They have this big convention and there's all these people there trying to talk out what are, what do we want the country to look like? Like we have an opportunity to reshape the country. How do we want to do it? You know, so there's all these ideas. People would write speeches and, and speak before the assembly, but it's all very disorderly. There's no real mechanical system happening. It's just kind of like uh, a bunch of lectures, you know, and a bunch of people giving ideas, you know. Um, but so within this environment, the, the rival faction, the Jacobins, they were not bourgeoisie businessmen. I mean, they, some of them kind of were, but this was very much more a vulgar populist kind of movement. And the Jacobin club was a famous a club that, you know, was kind of similar to the Lewis club that Thomas Paine was a part of, only much more radical. Okay. Okay. So anyways, as the revolution goes on, the Jacobins start to 
get more and more influence over events. And the idea that the king should be put on trial starts to be floated around. And this was a very, um, I guess, heretical idea to a lot of people that the king really hadn't done anything wrong, so to speak. He was just kind of a figurehead for this ancient, corrupt, shitty regime. But putting him on trial is kind of like you're putting all of like the French history on trial. Like it's, it was very controversial if you should even try to try the king. Can the king be held accountable for crimes? Like are crimes committed by his deputies his responsibility? You know, like so it was very interesting kind of movement. But the Jacobins eventually convince everybody that the king has to stand trial and that if we're going to move on into this new France, this new, you know, enlightened era, we have to close the book on the old era. And by indicting the king and find, holding him accountable for all the crimes of the past, this will be kind of like the torch that will guide us into this new free area. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. And so, yeah, they come to the idea we're going to have a trial for the king. And this is kind of, you know, when things start to kind of go sideways. And so Thomas Paine is in the assembly and he is trying to come up with a way to get the king, you know, a compromise, basically. We don't have to kill the king. We can exile him. That would be just as good. Like, if we just exile the king to some faraway land, it'll prove that the king is just like everybody else and a man. And once he doesn't have his royalty or his money, he'll have to live like everybody else. And so that was Thomas Paine's idea, exile the king. Um, Other people wanted to just not have him tried and just give exonerate him. But the Jacobins wanted to have him put to death. And eventually they just kind of start taking over the revolution and this committee gets formed. Like, so, you know, there's all these kind of revolutionary groups, you know, and well, some of them are enemies of the assembly. Like there's, there's rival groups that are trying to stop the revolution they're trying to crush the National Assembly. We need some protection against the enemies of the revolution. And so they come up with this like Bureau of Public Safety. I believe that's what it's called. And this is, you know, these bureaus, these are the ones that go on to commit all the crimes. Um, so you have this, you know, Bureau of Public Safety, and they're given. It's very dictator- like George Orwellian, right? Like, it's like <laughs> yeah. the Public Safety Bureau are the ones that are endangering the public. Yeah, it really is, dude. <laughs> a lot of this stuff is or- Orwellian, and the guy kind of behind this is a guy named name of Marat, Jacques Jacques Marat, I think his name was, and he owned like the largest uh, public newspaper that was anti-government. So he was like a publisher. And, but the guy was like really sleazy and no. he, oh, I know. Shocking. Yeah. Shocking. He, he is eventually murdered, uh, during the revolution. Um, was he murdered he, by the Jacobees or, or executed by the Jacobees? He wasn't actually, he was murdered by like, I think one of his, uh, victims, like uh, friends or something. It was oh, like more okay. like a re- revenge deal. Oh, word. Okay. But, but anyways, Marat, not a nice guy. Um, kind of sets up this new committee and they have to find all these enemies, you know, and, you know, 
there's well, not yeah, really... one of the primary purposes of bureaucracy is to continue to exist. So if they exist for a purpose, they better do their purpose, right? If they exist to find the enemies, they got they got to find enemies, right? Yeah, and these people started finding a tremendous amount of enemies. <laughs> <laughs> They're ev- enemies are everywhere. Every, they were everywhere. They were absolutely everywhere. Um, but uh, as the yeah, trial goes very on, scary. Yeah, and so this is how they took over the revolution is through this committee and. All those rival kind of politicians, the Girodians or whatever, I've like said it like four different times now, um, four different ways, four different times. Maybe one of them's correct. But the, <laughs> the kind of like, and this is where right and left comes from. So like the during the king's trial, the two factions that would kind of, one wanted to condemn and kill him, they'd sit on the left and the people that didn't want to do that were sitting on the right. Oh, interesting. Okay. That's kind of where that comes from. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Which is so interesting now too, where it's like the, when we think about, um, you know, American, you know, modern American politics and issues like capital punishment and stuff like that, it seems, uh, it's a different story, right? (laughs) Right? Yeah. I mean, they don't, yeah. The modern left and right just, it's, pretty it's, much meaning, meaningless. Yeah, it, it does opinion. seem pretty meaningless for sure. Yeah, in yeah. terms of it doesn't seem to be as dichotomous as one might imagine. Yeah. Yeah. But so Thomas Paine comes up with this idea to exile the king to America and he writes like a, a speech to the to the convention during the trial, you know. But he, because he doesn't speak French, he has to have one of his friends read it out loud. And as his he friend still is reading, doesn't speak French. He does not speak French. Yeah, <laughs> okay. he can like understand a little bit of it, but he just could not speak it. How long has he been in France by this time? Uh, he's been in there like a, a year or two. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so the revolution's been going on, and the king's on trial. And, he, and as his friend is reading his idea to, you know, exile the king to America, the Jacobins in the crowd start shouting, shouting him down, and interrupting him. And eventually, Marat comes forward and says, it's a problem with the translation. The translator has changed it. Thomas Paine would never say these things against the revolution. Hmm. (laughs) Yeah, see, Paine should have learned French. (laughs) (laughs) And so, yeah, Marat just like totally took the wind out of his entire sail. And like Marat was a really um, crafty politician using um you know deflecting blame and throwing it around like this like and again this is the dude that formed the the committee right yes okay okay and, and a committee is a dangerous thing <laughs> scary yeah <laughs> rose pierre will go on to lead this thing and he will be the real terror after all the other guys get killed so marat <laughs> okay. does get killed not too long after this period but um anyways it's kind of like wow like the revolution has come to this like i can't even say my speech anymore because there's people in the crowd that won't even let me finish like so it's kind of like this vulgarism was able to shout down all kind of reasonable opposition and intimidate people imagine that yeah yeah you know and they would show up outside you know rival newspapers houses and threaten to you know with a noose you know um you know so they're using all kinds of like kind of street violence and coercion repression intimidation to kind of take over this convention and to fill it with more like-minded people. But the end result though, is that the King is executed. And in his final speech, you know, the head of the committee, I think his name was St. Jesus. 
Um, Saint Jesus? What? Yeah, yeah. Or Jesus, <laughs> okay. Saint Jesus, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know how to say Jesus in French. I know, I know uh, it was a, it's a common name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but anyways, you know, you say this, you know, the king has been condemned to death and this is revenge for all of the French blood that has been spilled by the king. And the king starts crying and stands up defiantly and says, I've never once harmed another Frenchman. And they haul him off. Uh, yeah, so they're that's... like, you've been killing too many people, king. We are killing you. <laughs> 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 Sometimes so they, when you they point have... your finger at somebody, you got to realize that there's other, like, four, three, three other fingers pointing back at you, right? That old adage. For real, dude, yeah. And that's going to be kind of what takes over the revolution is that, you know, eventually after the King's executed, these, this rival faction just basically gets condemned as enemies of the revolution. So all of the more kind of moderate people, the more bourgeoisie, like they had a lot of connections to the previous regime, you know, like they owned a business and the French government would, you know, do business with their business. Like, so they, they did have a lot of vestigial kind of connections to the monarchy. And after the king was killed, that was basically a death sentence. Uh, so all those people became enemies of the revolution. And you basically just had these prescription lists that, you know, the, the committee would come up with a bunch of names and those people would all be arrested. And they had this jail they set up called the Luxembourg jail, you know, you know, the big rallying cry of the revolution was the attack on the Bastille, which was this huge prison that symbolized the, you know, tyranny of the, of the regime. You had all these political prisoners in there. You had Voltaire in there and the people attacked the prison and set everybody free. Well, the revolution sets up its own prison in the Luxembourg palace. And like, this is just like a hellhole. Um, and so people would get on these lists and they just get, it doesn't matter even if it's true or not, you know, that there's not a trial, it's, it's expedience, you know, the revolution cannot afford to have due process. We just can't afford it. The enemies are too close. They're too organized. They're all around us. And if we have due process, we're going to lose. So if you suspect somebody being an enemy, well, that's pretty much the only thing that really matters is the suspicion and the accusation. And if you see something, say something. But anyways, yeah. So the Jacobean Club has basically taken over the National Assembly. They've set up this Bureau for Security that has dictatorial powers. And they've circumvented the entire judicial system through these prescriptions. Like these are emergency. This is emergency powers, right? Like we're only doing this because it's an emergency. And so after Murat is killed, the... The next guy to kind of take center stage of the Jacobin Club is Robespierre. And that's when he launches the terror. And at this point, the revolution's just off the wheels. And Thomas Paine is like stuck in the midst of it. You know, he has been shouted down in the assembly. He has been accused of treason and he's an Englishman. And the British government, the English government is an enemy of the revolution. And France declares war on England. And so they want, and they want to get rid of all the foreigners, basically. You know? And so it's kind of interesting is that this, this revolution really kind of became a nationalistic police state. It started out with something very different, but as it went on, it became very nationalistic. And this is kind of when nationalism is becoming a thing. 
Um, it's really taking off and well, they want to get rid of these foreigners out of France. They can't trust them anymore. And while Thomas Paine, you know, had done some good in the past, it's, it doesn't matter. It's what have you done for me lately? And he eventually ends up on one of these death lists and he's arrested and taken to the Luxembourg prison. And this is like a hellhole. And, you know, guards would throw people out of the, the third floor windows. You know, they'd have accidents and they would get thrown out the window, you know, just and beat people to death. And just it was a horrible, horrible prison. And he's in there with all these other political prisoners, you know, and a bunch of his friends and stuff. And um, he's in there for about, I think, two years. And he gets incredibly sick while he's in prison. And he is basically thinks he's going to die. And for good reason, you know, he basically is going to die. And at this point, though, this is when he starts writing his next most uh, influential book and his by far most controversial work. And it's called The Age of Reason. And this is a scathing attack on religion. It's incredibly modern, incredibly secular. It's an interesting book. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with everything he says in it, but it's powerfully written. And if you take into account when he's writing it, he's writing it in prison when he's before he's going to be executed. Like, so this is kind of like, I can say these really controversial things because I'm about to die and I'm not going to have to face the consequences. Yeah. I've got nothing less to lose. So yeah. 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 And so while he's in prison, you know, obviously this is really embarrassing for him because he was a huge supporter of the revolution and now it's turned on him and all, yeah, yada, yada, yada. it has not gone well. <laughs> yeah. It hasn't gone well. Um, but he writes this book in prison, the age of reason, and he smuggles it out. Like it's smuggled out to consumption. And this book is really controversial. It's uh, it, it's an attack on Christianity, like and Judaism and Mohammedism, like any kind of organized religion. He is like attacking it. And, you know, honestly bringing up a lot of good points. Um, you know, the story, you know, he talks about how St. Augustine said that in his time, the stories of the Bible were considered fables. They were considered allegories. It wasn't until the time that had passed that all these things became factual. Um, and so just re-examining these factual events in the Bible, just how ridiculous they are. And like his big one is the serpent and Adam and Eve. Like Eve like talks to a serpent for a while and eats an apple and that condemns all of humanity forever? Like what? <laughs> Hey, God said that they shouldn't eat those apples, okay? <laughs> and like, it's obviously an allegory, but you know, people take it seriously. And so this is the age of reason. Like he, it's, it's not polite, like Edmund Burke, or I mean, like uh, Edward Gibbon. It's very vulgar. It's kind of written by somebody who is like given the middle finger to the world that is about to kill him kind of deal. But anyways, he goes on to survive in, in prison. So he gets extremely sick and he is thought to be on his deathbed and he was losing consciousness. You know, the the prison itself was like sunken and incredibly wet. It was like a grotto. Like whenever it would rain, the prison would flood and the, the walls were covered in water. And it's like this horrible environment. But he gets really sick there and he's basically fighting for his life and there's five or four other people in his cell with him, his kind of buddies. 
and other political prisoners. And they get permission from the guards to open the door of the cell so he can get some fresh air. So I guess, you know, the cell bar, I'm not sure what the cell would have looked like. I guess it was not just bars. It must have been an actual firm door. Yeah. And this anyway. was, you said this was like a, a palace. So it might not have like been, it, it might've been like a closet that they were keeping these guys in yeah, or something exactly, like that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's all converted. Yeah. Converted into a jail. Yeah. yeah. So I'm not sure how it looked, but they did get permission to keep the door open so he could get some fresh air. Now it just so happened that this is the, while, while the door was open, the orders came from the uh, Bureau, uh, Council for Security or whatever, the Board for Public Safety, <laughs> ordered the death of every man in his cell. So how it would work is the executioners would come, they'd get the list, like this little bureaucrat would like run the list over and give them the list of all the names, and then they would go through the jail and write on the cell doors how many people were to be taken from the cell that night. So then the executioners would come at night and they'd go to each cell and then they'd take the people away. But so as the guy was coming forward to write how many people to take away from his cell, he writes a four on the door. But then they have the door open so he can get fresh air and the door stays open all night. And as the executioners are walking through the jail cell, they don't notice because the door is opened, that there is a four written or a five written on his door. Oh, meaning shit. That everyone, every person in that cell was supposed to be guillotined, but because the door was opened, they didn't take anybody. Okay. And that's fucking so, cool. Isn't that crazy? So that's how he survived. And this whole time, he's desperately writing letters to the American authorities in France. So after the revolution, the American revolution, France and, and America, good good allies. And as the French revolution started, America was basically France's only ally. And so the American opinions, you had to keep Americans happy, basically, because they were depending on them for food and stuff, the French. Mm -hmm. So anyways, the American kind of diplomats had a lot of clout. And so Thomas Paine is trying to get the American envoy in Paris to get him freed from prison. You know, he says, I'm an American citizen. I didn't done anything wrong. You know, I haven't committed any crimes here in France. The only crime that I am is being an Englishman. And, but I'm an American citizen, you know? So can you please get me out of jail? And I guess, you know, the first guy he was writing, this Governor Morris is somebody he knew from a long time. They weren't really on good terms. And Morris just never replied. And so he goes on to start writing George Washington, like, please get me out of prison. I'm, you know, I'm an American. Save me. Like, uh, and Washington never replies. Hmm. And it's thought that the alliance with France was just too important and they didn't want to jeopardize kind of um, over Thomas Paine, who was kind of a pain in the ass. Yeah, like, he was a pain, <laughs> I was going to say. Like, <laughs> yeah. He was a thorn in everybody's side because... He wasn't afraid to call people out on their bullshit. And that's not a popular person to be in the room, right? No doubt. Yeah. They make a lot of enemies. Yeah. And like, you know, he's just always stirring the pot. Like he, he just couldn't live a quiet life. He had to always be fighting some, the next giant, the next Goliath, you know, like he, he really was combative in his, you know, but anyway, so yeah. he's, he's desperately writing Washington to please get me out. Washington never replies. And he goes on to, 
harbor some serious animosity towards Washington, who he knew personally, and he dedicated the rights of man to George Washington. Um, so he was a huge Washington fan, but it soured. The relationship soured, and he wrote these scathing attacks against Washington. And just personal. It's all personal. He, he calls him uh, the heart or uh, a heart colder than ice or something like that. Like the coldest of all hearts, the coldest of all men. Anyway, so, but eventually the <laughs> well, Washington... Well, and then Washington proves him right by not saving him from prison. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said all that afterwards. Oh, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. Yeah, so Washington steps down from power and the new president, uh, John... Adams comes to power and they send a new guy to France to be their, um, you know, representative there. And that's James Madison. And James Madison actually finally replies to his desperate letters and says, yeah, you're an American citizen. Sure. And goes to the French government and says, release Thomas Paine. He's an American citizen. And so he does. So, He's, he's eventually freed from jail, you know, but as, as he comes out of it, you know, he's written this really controversial work now. And now he has to kind of face the fallout from that. So the last kind of stages of his life is that he does around this time is when Robespierre's government falls and the reign of terror ends. And the he's released from prison around the same time. And the whole French Revolution has to, like, start over. It's like, holy shit. We just had this really bad, uh, you know, blip in the bump along the road of revolution. But we want to keep going. We want to we don't want to go back to monarchy. And obviously what happened under the terror was awful. But we're just going to blame that on Robespierre and Jacobines and keep going with the new kind of revolutionary government. And this is where we get the directory and when we get Napoleon and all that stuff we talk about. Um, and he was a big fan of Napoleon's. Uh, he, you know, met with him. He came up with the idea for the invasion of England using long bottom boats. And Napoleon thought it was just a fantastic idea. And Napoleon really tried to like harness Thomas Paine as his like little lapdog. But eventually, he falls afoul of Napoleon after he becomes more tyrannical, and he decides to go back to the United States. And the the new president is. Thomas Jefferson, who is an old friend of him. And Jefferson actually sends a ship to pick him up. And this was like an American warship to come pick him up. And this caused a huge scandal. When he gets back to America, Jefferson is embroiled in like all these scandals and a really divisive and heated political situation has arisen in the American colonies since Thomas Paine has begun. You know, we have two factions, basically. We have the Federalist faction and the Republican faction, you know, one led by John Adams and one led by Thomas Jefferson. And it's, you know, it's not as bad as the infighting in the French Revolution where they're killing each other, but it's bad in other ways. They're smearing the crap out of each other in the newspapers. They're lying about shit. They're misrepresenting facts. They're smearing each other. They're bringing their personal lives into it. It's just all holds bar political nastiness that he 
arrives into. Nice to and know that uh, we haven't lost our our flair for the stuff. I know. Recently. I was surprised. I was surprised <laughs> that it happened so early on. It's like, funny almost too because it's like, oh, nowadays politics is so nasty. Like, when has it ever fucking been different? Everybody. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know. Studying some of these early like presidential campaigns. Oh my god, were they contentious and. You know, his uh, Jefferson's relationship with Sally Hemings was brought up in the papers. And he, you know, people accused Thomas Paine of asking Thomas Jefferson if he could rent Sally for the night. Like, really vulgar, like, mean shit. Like, (laughs) really mean shit. And And, just, like, uh, completely probably fabricated, right? Like, just these fantastic ideas. And, uh, yeah, I'm guessing we probably still see some some hint of this. Although I think there's maybe more... um, laws surrounding it now than there were at that time right yeah they, they had to make like you know libel laws so just you know you can't just write just crazy lies about your enemies like and print it like, you have to say it's satire now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> so anyways that's the environment he arrives in and you know because jefferson came to pick him up you know like, oh you spent all this money on sending a ship to france to pick up this atheistic traitor. And we hate work, him, remember? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So his work, The Age of Reason, has spread to America and it has not been received well. Um, there was kind of an event called the Second Awakening in like the early 1800s in America where religious thought really, they had a big religious awakening. And that's where we have a lot of these you know, American sects of Christianity, like the Mormonism and the Yabanas and all these kind of new groups of Christians forming their own new societies. And it was like this big flourishing of religious thought. In the okay, country. so just real quick, I, I found on Wikipedia, thanks Wikipedia, an excerpt from Age of Reason that I'd like to read just to give some context here so that Absolutely, people can yeah. hear some of the ideas. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is what he wrote. I believe in one God and no more, and I hope for happiness beyond this life. I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, or by any church that I know of. My own mind is my own church. All national institutions of churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to me no other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Whenever we read the uh, whenever we read the obscene stories, the voluptuous debaucheries, the cruel and torturous executions, the unrelenting vindictiveness with which more than half of the Bible is filled, it would be more consistent that we call it the word of a demon than the word of God. It is a history of wickedness that has served to corrupt and brutalize mankind, and for my part, I sincerely detest it, and I detest everything that is cruel. <laughs> Yeah, dude. So uh, yeah, it, there's nothing held back with this one. It is just. I mean, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Like, that's these are very modern. So I guess you know, secular humanist kind of style thoughts, right? Like, it really is. Yeah, and I think. And also, just real quick, the idea that that the word that you know this idea that we, we've talked about Gnosticism a little bit, and I think there's some of that in here too. Of saying like, well, is this like. Is this is this a cool, the work of a cool person? These stories that were here, or a, a cool deity, right? Like, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, 
in Gnosticism, they'd say like, well, it's the demiurge. That's what, you know, but yeah, not to get us too far off track, but I think that there's some, it's interesting that that kind of comes up for him there. We should definitely do a, a Gnosticism and like early church episode. And yeah. Yeah. Of, I'd love to get a guest for that one. Yeah. Yeah. That would be super cool. Um, but yeah, like it's, it is a very modern um, train of thought, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of kind of the book is a call, is a call for secularism. And it's not really atheistic because he says very clearly that he does believe in God. He believes in a creator. It's just that his church is in his own mind. Like, yeah. yeah. And I, that's, that's kind of, and he talks about deism too, which I think that's a very like deistic idea. It is. Yeah. So, and the deism, deists were thought of as atheists by the more, you know, um, hardlined Christians of the days. And you know, Thomas Jefferson was a deist. And, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of, um, it just didn't go over very well, you know, like to, uh, to us reading it today, like it sounds like, you know, it's, it's much more palatable, but back then it just wasn't. And it was just too radical. Like it was, you know, people were scared for his soul. Like, he was going to go to hell now, you know, like, and yeah, he said all those mean things about his favorite <laughs> book, you know, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so his second trip to America is not a happy one, and he's not beloved. He's not, there's not statues of him or libraries named after him. It's like nobody constant. like was meeting him at the shore with a, a hat and a, a new sash to wear, right? Yeah, like, it was, like yeah, it wasn't like his, <laughs> yeah, it was not like that. There were some people that showed up, but there were also people to show up and protest. I think there was more protesters than like, happy people (laughs) yeah and and it's just everywhere he goes people you know will make personal attacks on him you know he had a drinking problem his whole life he shocking yeah yeah you know guy i think you did touch on it the guy had some you know emotional baggage yeah yeah he sounds like he was definitely kind of a mess yeah and you know and at this time he's um it's just wishes people could understand, you know, he just wants them to understand how he sees the world. And it's really frustrating that all these other things are being brought up when all he's trying to do is help mankind, you know, like that's how he saw himself as a servant of man, as somebody, a citizen of the world, you know, I think he might be the first person to use that term citizen of the world. Um, But so yeah, his return to America didn't go very well. And he is not, you know, part of the cool club people don't want to come see him you know and eventually he just kind of dies cold and alone and like his um people are constantly coming to him and trying to get him to confess and to repent and there is this big kind of rumor with voltaire who was you know a contemporary of his a little bit earlier but you know, Voltaire wrote Candide, which is another scathing attack on the church in part. And, you know, Candide, uh, Voltaire was supposedly had this deathbed confession where he repented all of his sins and apologized and so he could go to heaven. Like, so that was the rumor that now we're not sure if that's true or not. Or if people just came after the fact and said, oh, yeah, he said that before he died. Sure. I mean, um, yeah, so- why not? <laughs> Yeah, so the most people coming to visit him at this point in his life are trying to get him to repent. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah, but 
there is, uh, you know, a witness to his death, and and they, the, she came to his side and asked if he if he wanted to if he wanted to confess or repent, and he said, "No, I have no desire to do such a thing." And he closed his eyes, and he died died in his sleep that night. So his okay. life, yeah, it, it's an interesting life, right? Like it's it's from two, you know, from England to America to revolution to another revolution and then never really finding a, a place for himself and never really being appreciated by anybody around him, you know? Like, yeah. And I wonder if like, there might've been something there too. Of, you said he got remarried, but people think that he didn't even like consummate the marriage, which I mean, that might make sense since his last wife died in childbirth. There might've been like a phobia surrounding that. I could totally understand um, that was the rumor, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, and maybe there's something there where it just like he didn't want to get close to somebody again because that sucked super bad, or and so like maybe a lot of this, de- you know, behavior that we see him like you know engaging in is just to keep you know to to keep people away, to keep fighting, to keep you know running from his demons. I don't know. Yeah, and you know, it's just another one of these guys that um, you know. A lot of people we've talked about on the show, they've left in really amazing contributions to humanity, to history, you know, to intellectualism, you know, whatever. And, but their lives have not been very happy or fulfilling or, you know, good, you know, Mm -hmm. just another one of these guys that's reading his works today. You would have thought this guy would have been like the most popular guy around. Like he's, his books were popular when they were wrote. Like, why was he so hated? Why would, you know? So just interesting, like looking back on him today and how we view him and really how he was kind of done dirty in a lot of the history of this country. Like part of the reason is, is that there's only been like three biographies written about him, but two of them were written by his personal enemies after his death. Like, wow. And yeah, like absolutely just slandered the crap out of him. Like, and really kind of controlled that narrative for like a long ass time. And it's only kind of more in the past, I don't know, 70 years or so where he's becoming more popular again. And But yeah, that's Thomas Paine. Hell yeah. Professional no, it, revolutionary. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, no, I, I kind of, I love this character, right? I, I think uh, so interesting. Um, and as you mentioned a few minutes ago, or just a second ago, the idea that, you know, comes up every once in a while on the show is like, you know, the price of greatness, right? Like, and yeah. I don't know. Yeah. What is, what is great quote greatness? It's like something that I think comes up so much in history, right? Like we have these great battles and these great, mostly men of history, right? Even though there's probably lots of interesting stories about women that did stuff. We just don't hear a lot of them. Um, But, and maybe we should try to do more of that on this show. I think that would be good. Um, Yeah. If you have anybody in particular you want to talk about, yeah, gosh, there's a lot of different um, people that most of them are made scientific contributions. But yeah, there's a lot. Yeah, lots of lots of stuff there. But anyway, yeah, just this sort of like concept of of quote greatness and like I don't know. It's interesting to think about like what does that actually mean and is that like is is thinking about that as something that's like desirable a sort of trap? You know, like I don't know, or or maybe not because like if if nobody went out there and like really i don't know do you think that thomas paine wanted to be a great man i i kind of do um i kind of do he he was very conceited in 
he was he was super conceited and okay. just thought he was right you know thought that he was smarter than everybody and that he was right and when people didn't agree with him you know he just couldn't understand it you know and he so might do... like write horrible things about you if you did yeah, to disagree like he did with to edmund yeah. burke yeah yeah so he definitely sounds like kind of a dick right he, like... he was yeah, yeah. He, he he was a hard person to be around and um, that again might get back to just kind of that uh, inner insecurities about getting close to people after having such a traumatic loss in your early life like that. And, you know, I, yeah, like I said, he wasn't very religious. He didn't go to church a lot. So, yeah, I don't know. He didn't have you... that kind of community to support him and stuff. And yeah. yeah, yeah. And, the you know, the communities that he did find were like in political circles, which is very cutthroat typically. And yeah, it does. There does seem to be just this weird kind of like when we're studying history, we see a lot of just exalted people oftentimes didn't have good lives. And it's, I don't know if it's like a choice, like, do I, you know, so when Achilles was leaving to fight the Trojan war, the Oracle came to him and said, you can go to Troy and fight and you'll be remembered forever, but you will die. Or, you can stay here in Greece and live a happy life. You will have many kids. You will be respected and loved and you will die a happy old man. That's your choice. Do you want to go to Troy or do you want to be happy? And he chose to be remembered forever, you know? To what extent so do you think that's like propaganda aimed to like encourage people to pursue military matters also? just. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's a story from the ancient world. Yeah, it's... sure, sure, sure. I just, you know, that's how, how it's reading to me in this moment. <laughs> but yeah, but I think that there is, there is this ex. You know, we all have this that existential fear of death, right? And so that this, oh well, you know, you'll you'll die, but you won't really die. You'll live forever by being remembered, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, it, it's interesting. And he himself was very afraid of death, and as his health started to go, he fell into just horrible depression and. Like he had to have people pick him up out of bed and carry him around like because he couldn't walk and he had all these bed sores and it was just miserable. Jeez. And it just like was not a dignified way to go out for such a dignified man like that lived a really dignified life and, you know, did what he thought was right, you know, and it almost cost him his head many times. And um, but yes, he is remembered, though, like it is kind of that Achillean like, like Achilles, you know, we still talk about Achilles. So the Oracle was right, you know. Um, so I don't know. It's just something kind of interesting to think about, I guess. Mm -hmm. But yeah, do you have any questions? I no, I don't think I have any questions. I mean, yeah, interesting, interesting story. Thank you so much for uh, sharing it with me. Oh, thanks for coming along with the ride, dude. Hell yeah. I hope you enjoyed it and uh, apologize for messing up all those French names um, and messing up some details, I'm sure. But uh yeah, Thomas Paine, one of my, I probably maybe could have read some more of his writing too, but if, if you do have a chance to read any of it, I highly recommend it. It's, they're all very short. They are designed to be read by commoners and not, you know, intellectuals. So it's easy to read, you know, it's not the super flowery language of Tocqueville or Burke, you know, so I highly recommend that people get out there, read some Thomas Paine and. All right. Fuck yeah. Well, we shouldn't leave before we remind everybody about all the dope stuff happening on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Absolutely. Yeah, we've got administrism, ad hoc history, of course, which you already know since you're listening to it. <laughs> Faithline Council. We also have Unearthing Paranormalcy, Grognostics, 
Primordia, Lux Occult, and Smuts Up. And we also have XV Planis, which is a show about paranormal investigation and all kinds of other spooky stuff. And I was recently a guest there. So you can hear me having a conversation with Flood and Alejandro about magic and the Green Mushroom Project and some of my other work. And uh, yeah, it gets a little bit blue. So if you enjoy blue humor, you might like that. Um, but yeah, a great conversation. And I sure appreciate those guys having me on. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Lexa. Thanks so much for having me. I mean, I feel I, I feel like Tom, I feel like Thomas Paine was like, a sort of like almost like a punk rock dude before it was a thing like he sort of i feel like he had this sort of like punk rock mentality where he just really didn't give a fuck about like anything but saying what he thought and i don't know i i think that's kind of cool yeah it, he's a really cool guy i really like him and re- reading about how miserable his life was it kind of made me sad to to learn that someone i really like just didn't have a good life but the same time you know the works that he's given us are you know they continue to be incredibly relevant today and um being read all over the world and it's just a amazing amazing font of thinking that came from this really interesting kind of eccentric person hell yeah all right well i guess we will see you guys in the next one Yeah, thanks so much for listening. I hope everybody is having a fantastic day, evening, or whenever you're listening to this. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, because knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. (laughs) 